If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Acts chapter 4. What we say and what we do often don't match up. I think all of us would say we want to be like Jesus, and I think all of us would agree that we want the gospel message to be propagated around the world. But I wonder when the rubber meets the road if that's actually what we are all about. In study, I have come across in the book of Acts different times where the church was persecuted. In this age of extreme persecution, we also witness explosive growth. Those things coincide. As I've studied through the scripture, I've also noted that we tend to preach that someday, someday soon, we will deal with persecution as believers. But I want you to grasp, according to the word of God, that persecution of the church and persecution of Christians is not a someday event. It is something that has never gone away since the time of Jesus Christ. In fact, we'll encounter it here in a moment in Acts chapter 4. In January of 2020, which is some of the most recent data I could get my hands on, a group advocating on behalf of persecuted Christians released their annual watch list. The World Watch List provides an assessment of 50 countries where Christians face the most severe types of persecution. Countries on that list would be North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea. You're probably going to have to get your Google Earth out to find that one. Sudan, Yemen, Iran, India, and Syria. In fact, every single day of the year, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every week, 182 church buildings or Christian buildings are attacked. And every month, 309 Christians are unjustly imprisoned globally. The reality is that the nations that comprise the top 50 make up 260 million Christians who are already, as we sit here, suffer high levels of persecution for their faith. If you were to add the countries just outside the top 50, another 50 million could be added. Nations such as Mexico, Chad, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In fact, it is a ratio of one in eight Christians face persecution worldwide. It's stunning to me that this list, as one concluded, provides the most comprehensive grassroots data on Christian persecution. He said, but it is much more than that. It is a sounding alarm. And it is not going to get easier. Certainly, church persecution is very real. Definitely, it is nothing new. In fact, by my best estimation and assessment of the first century church, it is one of the key integers for the fervent commitment that we see in the book of Acts. 
It is one of the key ingredients for the propagation of the gospel message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, as Jesus said would happen in the first chapter of the book of Acts. As Jesus commissioned the church, so does hardship and persecution become a catalyst for the fulfillment thereof. And here in Acts chapter 4, we're about to enter into an awesome moment. One author said this, comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. Inertia is the tendency of something that is standing still to stay standing still or something that is moving to keep moving. The very things, he wrote, that we think would produce personnel and energy and creative investment of time and money in the cause of Christ and his kingdom instead produce again and again the exact opposite. Weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, and preoccupation with security and safety. It's a strange principle, he wrote, that probably goes right to the heart of our sinfulness and Christ's sufficiency. The principle that hard times, like persecution, often produce more personnel, more prayer, more power, and more open purses than easy times do. And so we're going to study in the coming weeks within the book of Acts different persecutions of the church. And it will not defeat us, nor will it deaden our zeal. But in fact, it will unlock our understanding of how God uses hardship to propagate the message of the gospel and to enable explosive growth. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost arrives This small group of believers after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ are gathered and they are praying. The power of God comes down on the room. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved and baptized and added to the church. It is immediate. It is explosive. It is evident growth of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the time we arrive in Acts chapter 3, the power of God is visibly displayed in a tangible way. As a man who is impotent, he's paralyzed, cries out for Peter to heal him. And Peter says this, you don't have to turn there, but he says, silver and gold have I none. Literally, I have no material wealth to give you, and he did not. He is basically an unemployed fisherman who has followed Jesus for years. But such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now let's just pause to set the context for the scripture that I want to read to you. Hardship is about to arrive And it will coincide with the blessing of God. That does not jive with our minds because we imagine the will of God and the favor of God eliminates all hardship. Not so ever within scripture. We've just seen thousands of people respond to the truth and repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. They are saved and they are baptized and they are a part of this church in Jerusalem. Peter and this fledgling group of apostles is leading this ragtag group of misfit believers 
and a paralyzed man calls out and Peter heals him in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And the story is unfolding before us as this man leaps up and perhaps still holding on to the arm of Peter, walks into the temple space where the church would gather near Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was merely a public speaking platform within the temple area where all kinds of orators would get up and spread their message. And this is the place the early church used. Peter would go into the temple and he would preach the message of the gospel. Mark it down, they did not have a church building and the church grew. That goes against our thinking. Which is why it was necessitated in Acts chapter 2 that they meet from house to house and they carry out the Lord's Supper and the ordinances in that way. You don't have to have a church building for God to grow a church. Can I also tell you that when they gathered together at Solomon's porch, they did not go home first and put on all their finest and show up with their Bible under their arm They didn't have a Bible to stick under their arm and they showed up with what they were wearing They looked like common everyday people. Now, I know that flies in the face of our thinking, but that's how the Bible works. It tends to be counterintuitive. Now they are preaching. And Peter, right on the tail end of healing this impotent man, as the Bible would describe him, they walk out onto Solomon's porch, and we pick up here in Acts chapter 4, and here's what we read. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. That is a word that indicates suddenness. Being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit, Many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Can you picture this scene? This man who was lame is now healed, and he is leaping, and he is praising God. For years, he has laid outside of this religious institution dominated by tradition and custom indicating its inability to bring life because he has remained in his paralytic state. Now on the scene bursts the power of the Holy Spirit and the life-changing truth of the gospel message, and as though God has gifted Peter and John with a living object lesson, this man is healed and he walks into this place of custom and tradition and tightness and lethargy and apathy and he is screaming out, I praise God for the fact that I can walk. Perhaps Peter has to silence him just a little bit as he centers himself on Solomon's porch to begin preaching again. This shockwave has spread throughout the temple. In essence, people are no doubt saying, hey, this is the lame beggar. This man hasn't walked in 40 years. There's no way this is him. Maybe he's still holding on to Peter's arm like a living illustration, and Peter begins to preach. And back in chapter 3, he indeed explains that this man is an illustration of life in Christ. This is what it's like in the kingdom. 
Death becomes life. Darkness becomes light. Impotency becomes potency within the kingdom. He's clearly preaching that this man is an indication of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And in fact, in verse 26, he preaches and he speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this sparks the attention as we read in verse 1 of the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees in the Bible are not good people. How many of you know that? You don't want to be a Pharisee. You ever been called a Pharisee? I've been called a Pharisee. I say, no, it's just a Baptist. We just hate everything. That's... It's not really pharisaical, it's, it's in our blood. It's in our bottles when we're babies, we just hate it all. Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees were an incredibly affluent and influential group of people. They dominated the body of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court of the nation of Israel. The Sadducees worked closely with the Roman government to keep peace and to line their pockets. And the Sadducees denied the supernatural. They denied any miraculous event and they denied the resurrection from the dead. That's why they were sad. You see? Right? That's that's, that's good stuff. That's a Bible comedy act. I have considered resigning and going into the cruise industry and just doing this on cruise ships, just Bible jokes, but I know it would flop so terribly because you don't even laugh at all of them, but you like that. That means you're as dorky as I am. But someday somebody's going to say, have you ever heard of the Sadducees? And you're going to go, you know what? They didn't even believe in the supernatural, the miraculous, or resurrection from the dead. And they're going to go, whoa, you're smart. And you're going to be like, no, I have a great teacher who taught me a way to remember this. They were so sad, you see. You laughed again. Sad, you see. Can I keep going? Nope, it's done. Dried up. The Sadducees hear the message in 326 where Peter, with audacious boldness, says, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And this man standing here who has been healed, and there's no doubt he was paralyzed, and now he's leaping and jumping, is evidence of the power of Jesus being raised from the dead, and the Sadducees do not like this. The Sadducees settle down on them. Peter and John, if they are seen as right, that means we are wrong. And if we are wrong, that means we no longer control this city and this religious group, and our pockets will be emptied. We must silence them. And so they step out, perhaps right onto Solomon's porch, In the midst of a message where they are now speaking the gospel and the apostles' command, and they seize them suddenly. Silence with you. Can you fathom the captain of the temple and the priests, the Sanhedrin, walking out onto Solomon's porch right in the middle of Peter's message with thousands of people gathered and listening and escorting them off the stage physically? That's what happens. You say, well, last year I had to wear a mask. Similar, but it's not. Peter and John are taken, and we are about to witness them for the first time, minus Jesus, do a night in jail. Now listen, 
They had seen Jesus walk on water, right? They had seen Jesus feed thousands. And their thought process is probably, if only Jesus was here. There's no way they would touch us because do you remember that time he took that whip and he ripped tables over and he chased people out of this temple? There's no way they'd mess with us if Jesus was here. Yeah, but they're messing with you now. And Peter and John are in jail. One would have thought that the temple guard might have been sufficient, but these religious bigots come with a show of force, much like they did when Jesus was arrested. Jesus didn't put up a fight. You didn't have to come with 600 Roman guards, torches, spears, swords, clanging, and armor to get Jesus of Nazareth out of the Garden of Gethsemane where unarmed he was praying. But that's how they work. The captain of the temple was a man who was in charge of a group of priests, the Levites, had 24 different groups that would police the temple area, making sure that nobody who was unclean could make it in. And the man who was commander of that group of Levite priests at that time was the captain of the temple. And so the Supreme Court of Israel walks out onto the stage. Some acting priests walk out onto the stage. And the temple police walk out onto the stage. And they seize Peter and John and they usher them off into jail. You didn't really have to do that. You probably could have waited till the end of the message and had a conversation with them. But I want you to note something. This entire atmosphere, this manner of treatment, this crowd of people was all calculated to make them afraid. It was all done up so that they would be dominated and controlled by fear. And I want to say this to you. Mark it down. Our adversary, the devil, traffics and specializes in fear. That is one of his greatest weapons against us. Just be afraid of how you are perceived. Be afraid of how you are received. Be afraid of standing up for Jesus. However, all through the night, the city no doubt is brimming with the news of this man who was healed. Coming into these headquarters of the church all around the city is news that people are being saved. In fact, it's up to about 5,000 men alone who are saved. You can persecute. You can create hardship. You can set up obstacles and challenges. You cannot take away the power of the word of God. Do we truly believe in the sufficiency of scripture or do we not? Because I meet a lot of Christians who would say, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but it is evident they do not. The Bible, in Paul's letter to Timothy, says this. The Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, and for correction. It is profitable. It's good for instruction in righteousness. Now, either we believe that or we don't. What some people want is for me to codify and police the righteousness. Either the word of God and the Holy Spirit can be good for instruction and righteousness, or it is not. Either I have to step in and shove the pulpit over and clap the lid and stomp it down and scream and shout to get you to do what I want, or the word of God is sufficient. Either it is or it is not. And here what we see evidence of is the power of the word of God. Just tell people the truth about Jesus. One of my pulpit heroes, isn't that a weird thing to say, is C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon was once going to speak, 
And he stepped into the auditorium to simply test the acoustics of the auditorium that he was going to speak in. Stepping into the pulpit, he loudly proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Satisfied with the acoustics of the auditorium, he walked away. Unknown to him, there were two men working in the rafters of that large auditorium, and neither one of them were Christians. One of the men was pricked in his conscience by the verse Spurgeon quoted and became a believer later that day. That is the penetrating power of the work of God. You might usher Peter off the stage. You might throw him into jail. You cannot deny the power of the word of God. Always it is our weapon. It is our sword. We have it available to us. Now the next day arrives and we read this in verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers, and I want you to notice something specific in these verses, and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander And as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. Don't you get tired of hearing the word and in that verse. And, 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 and. It's a little Greek word, kai. K-A-I. It is a grammatical technique that Luke is using because he wants us to be amazed at who is gathered together here in this room. Simply look around and, and, and he was here, and he was here, and he was here for these two poorly dressed, uneducated fishermen who are preaching a message. Can you imagine? And then we read in verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? We know, because we heard it in Acts 3. By the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's the name we used. Think for just a second as this scene unfolds, and I want you to note something. There is no resistance offered by the apostles, is there? We don't read of any resistance as they are seized and taken off of Solomon's porch. We don't read of any resistance as they are placed into the jail cell. We do not read of any resistance or screaming aloud as they are taken from the jail cell and they are placed into that hall of judgment sitting there in the presence of the Sanhedrin. They simply follow the pattern of Jesus who also did not resist. Jesus, submitting to the will of his father, in essence helped the arresting party arrest him. And as a sheep, as a lamb, Jesus silently went. He willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice. That is an interesting note to study. Now what Luke has done for us is he has told us, take a look around this room. Understand, these are the blue bloods. Here's Annas, the high priest. Annas is now currently retired from the high priest, but he is still the power behind the whole scene. Annas is an exceedingly wealthy man. His son-in-law Caiaphas is now the reigning high priest authorized by the Roman government to be such. He is also the president of the Sanhedrin, this 72-member Supreme Court of the religious and legal things of the nation of Israel. Oh, and by the way, John and Alexander were there. Now you say, I don't know John, who's that? I don't know either, but Luke is telling us they are impressive, 
austere, wealthy, influential men. And a whole lot of other people related to the high priest were gathered in that room. All of them sitting around, all of them exceedingly wealthy, all of them highly educated, all of them with seminary doctorates. And those people are the worst. Know-it-alls, condescending seminary people. Yuck. And in the midst of this room is Peter and John, two guys who grew up around Capernaum, fishing on the Sea of Galilee. These guys have calloused hands and ripped up clothes. In fact, most recently, they've been traveling with Jesus, who had no place to lay his head, didn't really know at times where his next meal was coming from. Now, Jesus is not on the scene. They've dwelt on the good graces of people. They've held church out on Solomon's porch, and literally, they just spent the night in jail, and now you have them on trial, and this austere, affluent group of men with all the power in the world sets them in the middle of this circle in the hall of hewn stones, imposing their power on them, trafficking yet again in fear and intimidation, and they say to them, Who in the world do you think you are? And by whose name, they know the answer to this question. By what authority and power are you preaching this message? If Peter and John ever wondered whether following Christ was different than following the tradition of the Jews, this is the moment. If ever they wondered, are we really empowered or are we not? This is the moment. And Peter is about to open his mouth, and I put myself in this position, and here's what I think. Peter, please be politically correct. Peter, relax for a minute. Think through all of the implications. Think through everything. In fact, Peter, here's what we're going to do. The church has decided we're going to give you a little sabbatical. We're going to send you up to Capernaum. Fish. Get out on the sea. Swim about. Eat dates or whatever it is you do up there in Capernaum in Bible times. Eat that stuff. Sleep in. Be up there for a bit. But whatever you do, Pete, don't rock the boat. This isn't the moment. I don't think Peter has a don't rock the boat in him. Because here's what we read in verse 8. Then Peter, here's the key phrase, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Okay, Peter, tread lightly. Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel... If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Oh, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Peter, I don't know where you came up with that. I don't know where you got it, but that is some powerful and potent scripture. Peter, I would have been John, literally, I would have been scooting away from him like that is him. I understand we are in trouble currently. I've taken stock of this environment. I feel the heat. I know you've turned the thermostat up. I see all of your papal garb. I grasp who you are. I just want to go home. I just want to be with my family. I want to eat again. And now Peter's basically saying, you can drag me out of here and kill me. I don't care. You can tell me to shut up. I'm not going to do it. Now, I do understand that part. 
You can tell me to be silent. There's nothing you can do to me. The words that Peter used shatter any attempt to pick and choose. He looks the Sanhedrin right in the face and he says to them, your whole tradition and all of your custom has been obliterated by Jesus Christ. You and your office is now obsolete. We are the new breed and we are here to tell you there is salvation, not in any of your sacrifices or your offerings or in this ornate place, but only in Jesus. Well done, Peter. That's not going to be received very well. The fact is the verdict of the Sanhedrin arrives in verse 13 and there's some humor in it. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council... They conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them, and it's manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. That'll do it. Bring Peter and John back in here. Let's threaten them and tell them no more talking about Jesus. That's enough of this. I will let this one healing go. We can't explain it, nor can we deny it. We'll let that slide. But that's it. You're off Solomon's porch. No more name of Jesus coming out of your mouth anymore. You unlearned and ignorant men. Isn't that interesting? They perceived. They listened to them. And that was pretty powerful stuff that Peter said. But by his accent and by the way that he said it, they're like, hmm. I perceive that you are unlearned and ignorant. Unlearned, if you study it out, means unable to write. Ignorant in the Greek, if we transliterate that into English, it's where we get our word idiot. I'm not being funny. They said, I'm looking at you in your ragged clothes, your calloused hands, your tanned skin. You're clearly just fishermen from the north. I I can sense within you, you are uneducated. You are certainly not at our level. You're unable to write. You're idiots. How How you're having this impact, I cannot put my finger on it. But here's what I do know. No more talking about Jesus. And in verse 18, they call them in the room. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Silence, we order you never to speak his name again. We don't want to argue about it. We don't want to weigh the evidence. We just want you to be quiet. That's all we want. All of this theater has been built to intimidate you and to induce fear within you. That is how the adversary works. You have been threatened no more speaking about Jesus And the conviction of the apostles arrives in verse 19. When Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You can tell me what I can and can't do. That's up to you. But here's what I cannot stop. I got to tell my story. I was there. Peter could say, listen, I was there when my brother brought me to Jesus and introduced him to me. 
I was there when I watched him feed thousands of people. You, you weren't there, but I'm telling you, I walked on water. I went swimming a little bit, but I walked on water. I was in a boat when the storm and the wind was raging, and I saw him get up and say, muzzle it wind, and the sea became glass, and the wind stopped, and I sat in the boat amazed and afraid. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I heard things, man. I saw things up there. I can't explain it. I was in the garden. Granted, I nodded off. I own that. But I saw him under the weight of the world cry and agonize great drops of blood. I will tell you this. I sprinted to the tomb where they laid him and the stone was rolled away and I ducked down and I walked in and I saw the clothes. They were folded up. He wasn't there. I was in an upper room with the door closed, having a prayer meeting, and I was feeling sad, and suddenly he was in our midst, and it scared me out of my girdle. But he said, peace unto thee, be of good cheer, it's me, Jesus. I was fishing a little bit, and he was on the shore, and already, when we couldn't catch fish, had cooked fish on the shore, and I went and I ate with him, and I heard him, you can tell me to shut my mouth, and you can threaten me with jail, all I can do is tell the truth, I can't help but tell my story, that's what Peter is saying, can I help you to understand that literally though they were commanded not to make a sound, All they did was tell their story, and that's the greatest weapon you have. Just tell your story. Unless change just isn't really that evident. Or unless you're so alien that nobody wants what you have. Just tell your story. What has Jesus done for you? Either the word of God is sufficient or it's not. You decide. You got a story to tell if you know Jesus as your Savior. We say we want to be like Christ. We say that we want the world to know that Jesus is the only way of salvation, but whenever tested, what comes of our words? Listen, when Peter and John were sitting before that group of austere gentlemen, they knew that they should expect no better than what Jesus got, correct? Jesus got the cross, that's probably what was coming for them. It was right there in Caiaphas's yard that Peter denied Jesus. And now he's looking Caiaphas in the eye. They know who they are. Peter's not in there thinking, you know, this is going to end well. Probably going to get let go and have dinner out here in Jerusalem in the market. He's probably thinking, if I got one shot to sit in front of you, Sanhedrin, here's what I'm going to tell you. Don't go to hell because you don't know Jesus. That's it. He's probably thinking, this is the end for me. Here's what one writer said. If you ever hope to make a difference in your culture, his name must mean more to you than your own life. But I'd venture to say not one of us in here can identify with that sensation. You ever prayed in a restaurant? Don't raise your hand, just think about it. You ever prayed in a restaurant and felt awkward about it? Like, uh, everybody's gonna know. And you know what we think to ourselves? I take stands against hardship because when I was at the Chick-fil-A, I bowed my head and prayed. And others around me, they looked, they stopped for a second and they looked and thought, weirdo, praying. But I endure persecution. Mm. Yeah, upside down cross. Peter, can we ask you, the prayer in Chick-fil-A where people looked at us awkwardly, is that the same as when you were crucified upside down? No, uh, yeah, no. 
not the same. But there was that one time in the workplace that I was about to tell people my testimony and how Jesus saved me. And somebody told an off-color joke or they used some language and I thought, oh, this isn't the crowd. <laughs> they use this in front. So I just said something like, well, I'm glad I don't do that anymore. Because Jesus... And I got out. See how I stood in that persecution and heart. I want to be like Christ. Everybody in this room would say that. I want the gospel to go around the world. There isn't one of us that would deny that. But when the rubber meets the road and brass tacks time comes down, where are your words? And the truth is, a lot of people in here have such a shot testimony at work that if they began to try to proclaim the gospel, they would be mocked. And some people are so alien that if they tried to tell somebody about Jesus, they'd think, well, that's what it is. I don't want that. Are you and I truly wanting to be like Christ or are we not? Nobody can argue with the testimony of a changed life. That's what you've got. Do you speak it with boldness? The hour one wrote of the need of the church of Jesus Christ is simply for this, spirit-filled, Christ-centered boldness. The apostles were not perfect by any stretch, but they had learned the all-for-one principle, everything for Jesus. Tozer once wrote this, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. It's time to tell the truth. To be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. Who are you in trouble with? Well, I'm always in trouble with what, what, who? People who don't know Jesus, Christ deniers? That's how it works. When the When the church assembled together, Peter and John are threatened and they're sent out. They have a prayer meeting. And what they pray for is boldness. Why? Because they had been threatened. They prayed for boldness to preach the message of the gospel. And they pray aloud Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And the kings of the earth take counsel together against God. Who do they think they are? They're not going to silence God. We live in a world that tells us to shut our mouths We live in a world that tells us we're unlearned and we're ignorant and nobody cares about what we've done or what we've got and they threaten and they press and here's what we must do. Pray for boldness and tell people about Jesus and show them with our changed life. That's it. When the church endures hardship, explosive growth is the result. And we want explosive growth and we want the propagation of the gospel and we want more workers and we want more energy and we need more money and we just don't want the hardship that coincides it. It's always together. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.